Well, good morning. Um, for those of you who are our guests, I want to welcome you. My name is Greg Harris. I'm the senior pastor here at Olive Branch. Glad that you guys would be joining us today. Um, for us, a couple big things are coming up. Obviously, daylight savings time is coming. We want to advise you, hey, this is the one time of year everybody decides one hour of sleep is more important than ever joining the church. And we want to advise you against that idea. And so uh, um, two, two ways to do that. Number one, if you can't make it then that morning, Come to Saturday night. That's why we've got it. The time doesn't change for Saturdays. It's going to be easy. Um, they're all expecting you, too. I told them last night. So, And second, or we're going to have coffee Sunday. We're going to have an opportunity. If you need an IV drip, we'll bring it. Um, no, I'm just kidding. But we're going to have plenty of opportunity for you to stay awake and alert. But also, Easter's coming, and we've been talking about inviting those three friends. And so we want to make sure that you guys have an opportunity to be praying for people. And so this Easter card is not to give to people. It's for you to write those names of those three friends down, to remember who who they are to be praying over them to take and, and make that opportunity to invite them to our Easter services. That's there. We'd love for you guys to pick those up and get those. Um, and so grab those, put them in your wallet, be praying over those because indeed Easter is coming. It's less than a month away. And in this next time period, you're going to hear a lot of different things about Jesus, especially Jesus is going to be on the mind of everybody because Easter is about Jesus and um, not primarily about bunnies and eggs, but it's primarily about Jesus. And so it's interesting is there's going to be a lot of questions out there about, well, who is Jesus and what is he really like and what has he really done and what should we really believe and all of these things. And so I'm sure lots of people are going to take to the internet to find out more about Jesus, especially since when you don't know something today, you Google it, right? So they pull up a Google on Jesus Christ and guess what? They're going to run into first and foremost, Wikipedia. Of course, Wikipedia is number one. They're just going to, and when you read the Wikipedia article, it's not bad, but it's just kind of like in general, like this is who people think Jesus is. This is what the church says. This is what historians think. And, and it's kind of this bland, like, okay, non-religious attempt to explain who Jesus is. And so you go, maybe you want the understanding. What do, what do religious people really think? What do Christians really think? So you'd think, yeah, the next one, right? Jesus is our man. The Mormons have the next website available. And so you pull up LDS.org and boom, they're going to tell you all about Jesus, that he was the Jehovah of the Old Testament, that he's the son of the father, that actually his brother is Lucifer, that he's got the right plan and he came to earth and he saved people. And so lots of interesting stuff that you're going to run into and that Joseph Smith's his prophet and all this stuff. And so you might be going like, well, that's weird or that's different. And um, so as you, as you run into that, you're going to go like, Maybe that's not the Jesus I'm looking for. I'm sure we've got him right in the next website, which is held by this group called the JWs, the Jehovah's Witnesses. They're the next, they're the third top website when you Google Jesus Christ, and they're going to tell you Jesus wasn't God, but he's the way to God. And if you'll just do the things that you're supposed to do when you follow Jesus, you'll end up in paradise. If you treat people like Jesus tells you to treat them, if you go out every Saturday because you're only supposed to worship on Saturday and make sure that you tell everybody about him, then you're going to be good. And maybe you'll make it to the new heavens or the new earth, but something like that's going to happen. And so you get another perspective about Jesus. Then you, so you're like, okay, we're for sure something about Christian theology will be number four. Nope. Popular mechanics, baby. They've got number four slot. You're like, what? Yeah, a few years ago, popular mechanics did this visual facial recognition software run of all these different Middle Eastern people, and they kind of put them into a conglomerate, and they said, this is likely what the Middle Eastern Jewish person looked like in the time of Christ. So this is likely what the face of Jesus is. You can Google the face of Jesus, and what you're going to see is this guy with crazy hair, a scraggly beard, dark skin, but he's looking like this. It literally made Jesus look like he's going like, what? Uh? And it's the most popular Googled image about Jesus after, you know, 
white bread Jesus from, from the 1800s or something, but it, it is a different, different view. And that just goes to show you, we've, we've put filters on Jesus throughout his history. Whether it's, whether it's the Jesus of the 1800s, whether it's popular mechanics Jesus, whether it's Jehovah's Witnesses Jesus, whether it's the Mormon Jesus or what, the, the, you can have the Oprah Jesus who just tells you Jesus is, is finding God in your own heart and discovering wh- who it is like, or whether it's liberal Jesus or Republican Jesus, it, it doesn't matter. What we have are filters about Jesus. And what's interesting right now is there's a large movement out there to discover what a filtered or, or altered photograph is versus a true photograph. And there's all kinds of work being done by, by Microsoft and other groups to try to embed information into photos so that you know whether it's been altered or not. Even on Instagram, they've gotten into the popularity contest of like, this is a beautiful photo, but is it real? Is it a true photo? Or we've put filters on this photo because guess what? I don't know if I really, it's a cool photo, but if you're filtering it, that's not what you captured. It's not like Ansel Adams, who, who took out the actual camera, sat down, and took a black and white photograph with a piece of thing called film. For those of you who don't know what film is, you had to actually take it in and get it developed. It's pretty amazing at the time. Um, but, and actually captured beautiful images of Yosemite in these different places, and he did it without a filter. And so today, to say, I did this without a filter, you throw a hashtag on it on Instagram called hashtag no filter. These are photographs taken without any filter, and this is why they're beautiful. And what I want to do is I want to challenge us to when we grow up, what we need to do to grow up is we need to look at Jesus, in a sense, with a hashtag no filter, without a filter on Christ. We need to see him, not the one we want, not the highlights we like and black out the rest. No, we want to look at Jesus with absolutely no filter on. And that's exactly what what the author of of the book of Colossians is trying to do. You see, we need somewhere to go where we can look with no filter. And my, my response to that is then you go to the Bible. And you go, really, the Bible? And it's all these old, isn't that just a book? And what about all the other books? Well, hold on a second. Because this book isn't just a book. Actually, it's a collection of books. One of the things we need to remember is that this is not just one book. It is two volumes bound together called the Old and New Testament. And they are a collection of different writings and literature from the ancient world. Um, in the New Testament, what you have is a collection of that literature which was given to us by those who were eyewitnesses and disciples, followers of Jesus from the first century. What's fascinating then is when you look at the book of Matthew, who was actually one of of the disciples of Jesus, he's writing out his recollections, trying to speak it to the Jewish people. John later is going to write out his recollections, which are different, and he's going to try to tell the Gentile audience in Ephesus what he knows Jesus to have taught. And then you have Mark. Well, Mark wasn't necessarily a follower of Jesus, so we can throw him out, right? No, actually, he was writing down everything Peter preached. It's probably the most dense, quick version of Jesus you can find. And he was writing to a Roman audience trying to say, this is who Jesus is, quick, down, dirty, action-oriented like an action film versus a long, drawn-out drama. And finally, you get Luke. Now, Luke was not a follower of Jesus and knew Jesus personally, but he was like the first newsman. And he went around interviewing everybody he could, gathering all the pieces of literature that were available. And when he gathered them, he said, look, I put them in order. I've, done a, I've thrown out what wasn't accurate and what wasn't historical. And this is what happened among us. 
And so the book of Luke and the book of Acts have been scrutinized for its history over and over and over again. And time and time again, archaeologically, we discover Luke was right on. He was there in the events of certain places, and he was listening to the people who were there in the events of Jesus. So when you collect these four Gospels, you get eyewitness original material. These are the guys who are telling everything about what they experienced with Jesus. And then there was this other guy. Strange dude. Um, he was a Jewish man, teacher. He had ran into the teachings of Jesus, had learned the teachings of Jesus. He had learned them so well, he had come to the examination, understanding of the teachings of Jesus as heresy. Thought of them as so disgusting and so horrific, he actually went out to shut down the Christian movement at the beginning of, by, by sanction of his government. And so Saul of Tarsus marched into towns, found Christians, arrested them, had them, had them killed or locked away, and made sure he was going to do everything he could to stop this heresy from spreading. And one day on his way down to Damascus, he encountered something that radically altered his life. He encountered the risen Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not talking about like Jesus just walking up strolling, going, hey, check out my wounds, I'm here. No, he, he encountered Jesus in all of his full-blown glory, shining down, knocking Paul to the ground, burning out his eye socket so he can't see, blinding him with his light and telling him, what are you doing persecuting me? This isn't what I have for you. Turn around and start preaching my name. And, Paul on, and uh, Saul turns on the spot and becomes eventually to be known as Paul the Apostle, one of the greatest evangelists of the first century. And he leaves us with these different writings. And in his writings, he is distinctly driven by Jesus Christ and what he experienced and the teachings of Jesus and the knowledge of Jesus. And so as he writes, he too is writing from an unfiltered perspective. This is who Jesus is. And so what we do is he sat down to pen a letter because one day along comes a man named Epaphras from a town called Colossae. And Colossae is freaking out because there's this really, 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 really charismatic teacher that's coming to town. And this charismatic teacher is like our charismatic bloggers nowadays. They, they just gather people and everybody's like, 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 and he's teaching stuff that, they, that nobody should be swallowing. In fact, what his big thing was, I can tell you how to get into the presence of the throne room of God. You want to see God, I can tell you what to do. You just follow these rules, live by these Sabbath laws, do these festivals, make sure that you're appeasing these angels and these demons. And then when you have meditated and you've done all the right things, you will enter into the presence of God in heaven. You'll see his glory and you'll be wondered at him. And he's teaching these esoteric knowledge and people are eating it up. They're like, this is awesome. We don't have to worry about all the other temples. We can have control over the fate of our life. This is great stuff. And Epaphras is going, this is bad stuff. I don't even know what to do here. And so he runs off to Paul. Paul tells him, listen, we got to write to these guys. We got to tell them to remember who they are. And so he writes originally, guys, this is who you need to remember. You were in Christ. And he moves to, this is who I hope you'll become in Christ because you're immature. And we actually just covered those passages in the last series. We call it um, Leaving Neverland. And now we're moving into a new series where Paul is going to bring the whole book together. The rest of the book of Colossians will point to these passages that we're looking at. And these passages are simply about Jesus. And he's saying, look at Jesus. This is who Jesus is. If you get this right, you will grow upright. If you see Jesus, then you'll see God. If you see Jesus, you'll know what it is to be a man. If you see Jesus, you'll know why you live and what your existence is for. Guys, what you need to do is just look at Jesus. And so that's where he begins. And that's where we'll begin. We're going to pick this up then in Colossians 
chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. You can open your Bibles there if you will. Join me in verse 15 on page 93 and the Bibles provided under the seats. You want to grab that and join us. We're going to be looking at I'm going to back up a couple verses to give some context. Now, like I said, he just finished telling them in verse 3 through 8, hey, this is what you are. I remember This is what we pray and remember you being so you guys remember. And then 9 through 14, he's saying this is what we want you to be, what we're praying you become mature. And then he reminds them, look, Verse 13, the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Now, his Son is the one in whom we have redemption and is in him whom we have the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether they're thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, this is dense material because it's really written as a poem, it's a song. And what he wants us to capture is this vision of who Christ is. And the logic is, is pretty much just laying out the ideas of who Jesus is and what he is over. And it starts with the simplest one. It says, look, Jesus is God visible. If you want anywhere to see who God is, look at Jesus. You see, one of the greatest questions any human being can ask in this world is, Not just, is there a God, but who is that God? It's not so hard to prove necessarily that an existence of a being like God exists. In fact, there's plenty of evidence out there that that has to be denied. There's entire tomes written on the logical implications of the creation and the world around us. I mean, you can look at the stars. You can look at the fine-tuning arguments of how the universe is put together. You can stare at the weather patterns, and you can see the creativity. All you need is an eighth-grade science level to understand the, the implications of the intensity of cells combining themselves in skin tissue and muscle tissue and this organs called systems and how all that comes together by just random chance is still a question many people are trying to argue for in the limited amount of time we have. And yet what we see in this design is, is impeccable quality and impeccable creativity and power when you look at the universe. And so under the Old and the New Testament, both claim all you got to do is look at the world around you to realize there's a God that he is very powerful and extremely creative. But that's about it. So it's no wonder, no matter what culture you drop into in the world today, you will not find a purely atheistic culture. You will only find cultures that believe in the supernatural God or gods of the world because when they look at the world around them, they understand the representation of God, that there's something, and they've created all kinds of different versions to try to understand that. And so when we start diving in, you realize there's all kinds of stuff to try to see God because God's invisible. And you know, what Paul tells you right here is in verse 15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you want to see God, Paul says, look at Jesus. He is the visible image of the invisible God. You want to know what God's like? You you don't have to go through long states of meditation and self-examination to find God within yourself and eat, pray, love your way to Jesus. That's not how this works. 
You don't have to find yourself in a temple ceremony shaking hands and swearing allegiances to various things to move to the next system of temple rites, to the next system of temple rites, in order to come to a place where you can ultimately get to see God. You don't have to go through the right appropriate Saturday or Sunday morning worship sets to do these various things in your church and make sure that God's happy with you so that one day you get to see God. You don't have to go and lay your, lay your special offerings over to be lucky enough to stand before the being of the all everything or whatever it is to see God. No, no, no. These are the filters humanity has placed before God in an attempt to understand him because God would have to explain himself to us. He has to come tell us what he is like. We can't go and tell him what he's like. And so what we see with Jesus is that Jesus showed up. He came to tell us what God was like. He came to say, I am God. I reveal God because I've seen God. One of John, one of Jesus' disciples, John, who was a student of his, in his recollections, in his old age, wrote this. He said about Jesus, no one has ever seen God. That is a common Jewish statement. Everybody agreed with it. The only God, speaking about Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. He's saying Jesus was the God who came to reveal him. God, he is God in human flesh to show us what God is like. Guys, this is hugely important. You realize we don't have to wrestle around to find God. You can see God if you simply look at Jesus. And here's the thing, you can trust that you're getting a good idea of what Jesus is. Guys, this Bible has a mountain and the New Testament especially, a mountain of manuscripts that attest to what it is. You're not looking at something changed by some clan in the Catholic Church that's secretly trying to teach us bad things and we switch the... No, no. We have so many documents. We know every change and every silly little mistake that's been found. We've accumulated all of that. We have enough quotations of the Bible from church fathers. We can remake the entire New Testament, save two verses... We have so much knowledge about what comes into your Bible as a 21st century human being, you can be guaranteed you have as darn near the original document as possible, 99%. It's only 1% that's debated about and it changes no doctrine. You have an accurate text. You are looking at the eyewitnesses telling you what Jesus was like. You can go to the Gospels and go, there's Jesus. But if you really want to know what God's like, yeah, you can go to the Gospels, you find out God's powerful, you can find out that God is truthful, you can find out all these different things. But let's face it, if you really want to know what God is like, go to the cross. When you go to the cross and you look at the cross, something amazing occurs. So we can see that God can do miracles. We can think if he can create everything, sure, he can do miracles. If he has the power, you go to the cross. And what does the cross reveal to you? It reveals you two amazing facts. First of all, that God deeply cares about justice. God does not like humanity being unjust to one another. God does not care for the evil that we have propagated in this world. He does not like it from the governments. He does not like it from families. He does not like it from races. He does not like it from different ethnicities. He does not like it from individuals. And so at the cross, God was so angry, so upset at sin, so ready to judge it and deal with it, he bore it on himself. Now, now stop and think about that for a minute. God could have the option just to willy-nilly forgive us all. And that's what some people think he did. He's like, oh, you forgive you. <laughs> it's okay. That's not what God did. He took it so dang seriously, so hugely seriously. He said, you know what? I'm going to punish it. And I'm even willing to punish myself. I'm so serious about this. 
He's not ignoring any of the injustice that's injustice that's happened to you. He's not ignoring any of any of the injustice that you've given to another. He punishes it all. And yet at the same time of the cross, you see something else. You run into the love of God. Now, that is a fashionable deal right there. Everybody wants to tell you, God is love, and God loves, and love, 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 love. And everybody from Oprah to uh, Rob Bell to everybody on, on, on Facebook, they're all going to tell you God is love. But stop and think about it for a minute. Where in the world did they get that idea from? Look at this world. Watch a newsreel for a week. My kids just watched Jurassic Park last night. I don't know if that was the smartest thing in the world, but hey, they watched Jurassic Park last night and they saw dinosaurs. And at first they're like, ooh, cool dinosaurs. And then they thought, this is scary. Dinosaurs are scary because they eat people. They eat things. Yeah, guess what lions do? Eat things, hunt things, kill things. While deers are screaming. Hurricanes come rolling through and they destroy all kinds of things. Earthquakes knock down all kinds of stuff, create landslides. Lightning creates fires and burns things. Guys, I don't know about you, it doesn't look like a very loving world. Where in the world did we get this idea from that God is love? Oh, that's right, looking at Jesus. The only evidence that we have that God is love is that on the cross, Jesus Christ, who was God, was willing to bear our sin because he loved us so much. He was willing to take all the human evil, all the earthly destruction, all the mess of this universe and swallow it on himself so that we would not be judged. He took our place. And at the cross, you see a God who loves us so much, he would do anything he possibly could to love and care about us. And so he bore your sin and my sin and gives it to us for free and says, you want to see God? You don't have to go through all this stuff. Just look at Jesus. In fact, if we're still confused, there's another aspect to this that's powerful. He says he's the image of the invisible God. You want to see God? Look at Jesus. But if you want to see what a man looks like, a true human being looks like, look at Jesus. Because, you know, if you're a Bible student, even if you're not and you've just read a bit of the Bible, you've ran into this before. Because this word, he is the image of the invisible God. Where have we seen that? It's on page one. Genesis chapter one, 27. He starts off and he, on day one, God creates light. And on day two, he separates the night and the day. And he starts forming the sky and the, and the ground and sky and the waters. Then he creates the dry ground. And then he starts filling things up, puts the stars and things in day, day four. And in day five, he starts to put filling up the, the sky and the ground fish. And you've got now birds. And then on day six, he goes, land animals. And he goes, stop. This whole time he's been saying, earth make this and let there be this and let there be this and let there be this. And now he says, stop, stop, stop. Let us. Changes the narrative. He says, let us make man in our own image. At the culmination of creation, he says, I want to make humanity and I'm going to make humanity after myself. We were made to represent God. We were made to be the visible image of the invisible God. And you know what we did? We messed that one up real big. All the evil, all the problems, all the guns and shooting and garbage is not because of the weaponry and the things that we have. It's because of the heart. Inside human beings dwells the desire to take anything good and twist it to our own use and desire. And in that action, that twist, you create evil. That's why it's called wicked. The word wicked meant to twist. It was depraved to twist something. 
Guys, we're wicked. We twist the good. We twist truth to our own use. We twist reality to our own desires. We break things as humans, and we haven't imaged God well at all. We've, in fact, in a sense, stolen his identity and misused it in the world. And so he goes, at the culmination of time, I decided, you know what, I'm going to show you what humanity really should look like. And he sent, and he came himself to be a true human being, to be, as it says, the image of the invisible God. And Jesus, therefore, is what a true human looks like. He loves like a true human. He has compassion like a true human. He honors God and represents God like humanity was supposed to. So if you want to see how to have a good marriage, if you want to see how to be a good businessman, if you want to see how to be a good father or a good mother, if you want to know how to actually live life well, you don't need to run to the blogosphere. You don't need to go to the self-help manuals. You, don't need, to, you need to look at Jesus. Because it is Jesus who dwells in you that you follow that shapes your character, transforms you to be loving and kind and patient and peaceful and gentle and self-controlled. Now all the rest can be added in on top of that if you want. But Jesus gives us instruction. He gives us the power. He reveals himself in the cross. And he reveals that we can be greater in the resurrection. You see, Jesus rose from the dead. This isn't just some God that got conquered by sin or some God that got conquered by death. He's a, he's a God who overcame death, overcame sin, overcame the devil, and then gave us the opportunity to do the same that we could truly be human again. Guys, you don't have to wander around on earth wondering what it looks like to be a human being, wondering how in the world am I going to do this? How in the world am I going to truly have value as a human? What does it mean he gives you the ideal picture? You, you don't need everything else. You can have heroes, but I guarantee you, you examine your heroes and the best parts of what you love about your hero is going to wind up pointing right back to Jesus Christ over and over and over again. That's why I'm not ashamed to say my greatest hero is Jesus. For he has died on that cross. He loved us. He bore our sins and he rose from the dead. He's the climax. He's the role model we need. And so Paul starts off huge. He just says, guys, you want to be a human? You want to really know God? You really want to see God? Look at Jesus. But then he goes into this. And Jesus, by the way, is the one who has it all. He's going to be the inheritor of all. He has legal right over everything. And it's found here in this term, the firstborn of all creation. Look back down. It says, verse 15, he's the, invisible, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. People go, aha, right there, see? Jesus is created. All right, let, let's, get, let's get some English going here. Ready? We forgot how to use words a long time ago. Not in the church. We've got to remember words have meanings, and they have exact meanings. And in the Bible, these words are used specifically. It says he's the firstborn of creation, meaning that he is before the creation. But when you're born of God, we don't use the word made or created. I make art. I create a piece of furniture. I don't beget furniture. That's just weird. I beget sons and daughters. You see, humans beget humans and dogs beget little dogs and plants beget plants. You do not beget things you make. Even though we like to tell our kids, I made you and I can take you out. You know, that's not the truth. You begot them. 
And so when it says that he's the firstborn of all creation, it's alluding to something that happens where God is God and he's always been God. Nothing changes in God, the scripture says, and yet God is the father, which implies that he's never not been a father. Now follow me, we're going to dive deep, so take a deep breath. Here we go. If God's always been a father, that means he's always had a son or a child and there's always been this relationship. And the ancients called that relationship an eternal begetting because when God begets something, he begets God. When infinity begets something, it begets infinity. These are two persons who are one God. In fact, we know it as three persons who are one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One is begotten, the other, the other, and the third proceeds. We won't get into the procedure portion, but the point is clear. There's been no time where Jesus did not exist as the son of God, because God does not change. And there's always been the relationship of familial love within God because he is love. And when we capture this and we realize this does not mean he was made. This means he's always been the firstborn. He's always been before creation. And therefore, like a good Jewish firstborn son, he inherits everything. Your car, your house, your financial info, your, everything you and I own, he's going to get it because he inherits everything. He's the firstborn above all creation. Nothing that exists and will, that will exist is not already written into God's will given to his son. He has the legal right over it all. And that's what Paul is saying. Here's the thing, though. The beauty of being a follower of Christ, according to Ephesians chapter 1, is that we actually get the inheritance with him. In him, we've obtained an inheritance. It's this inheritance that you guys have the promise of resurrection and eternal life. You have the promise of the new earth. You have the promise of these things. What guarantees you that you're going to have these things? That Jesus is the inheritor and you're the follower of Jesus? See, I get this. Because I was an amazing basketball player. I rode the bench my entire senior year. Yeah, our junior, actually junior year. It was, I, was, I was not that good. And, and the problem was that I rode, I was the last person on the bench. The guy just in front of me, his name was Jeff Hansen. And Jeff Hansen, he was the pop, one of the popular guys at school, man. Everybody loved Jeff. Jeff was this great guy. And, I, and I'm sitting there going like, okay, uh, we don't ever get to play, Jeff. We're just going to sit down here and talk, I guess. And so we'd sit at the end of the bench. And it was the, one of those games where we were just creaming the other team. We had a really good team that year. And we're just creaming the other team. Five minutes are left in the game. The whole crowd starts doing the Rudy chant, right? Hansen, Hansen, Hansen. They're cheering for Jeff to go in. I'm like, that's a, dude, dude, you're going to get in. He's like, ah. coach comes up after everybody's cheering Hansen. And he goes, all right, Hansen, get in there. And he stands up and everybody starts cheering, yay. And he looks at me and says, yeah, you might as well go too, Harris. And I enjoyed the inheritance of Jeff Hansen of playing on the court for those five minutes. I get it. Because one day when Jesus' name is called, because he'll be the firstborn, he'll be called forward, and God will say, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You've done all of this. I give you your inheritance. Our names are called right behind him because we follow him. We're part of his family. And he goes, here, this is all of ours. He shares the inheritance with us. We have the hope of eternity and the hope of resurrection, the hope of the defeat of the enemy and the hope of the defeat of death because that is his inheritance and he gives it to us who follow. And so if you want to know what your future brings in the midst of your anxiety and your fears of life, remember 
Whatever you sacrifice on earth for the sake of Christ, he multiplies for you in eternity. He has great rewards and great presence of him. Walk in that hope and confidence. For he is resurrected and alive. And so Paul says, yeah. He has the legal right over everything, but it's also because he made everything. Look at this. Man, he underlines this like crazy. He says, For by him all things were created. What do you mean all things, Paul? I mean, in heaven and on earth. Okay, what about under it? Well, okay, how about visible and invisible then? Okay, dimensions and quarks and atoms and air and spirits and angels and demons and anything I can't see. Okay, that's a lot. Um, and then he goes, even the demonic, yeah, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Nothing was not created by him. Everything is created by him. It, it just goes over and over and over. We see that because in Genesis chapter 1, Jesus is there. In Genesis 1, God said in day 1, he says, God says, God said, light be. That's what he says. Right there, there's Jesus. Because John, the apostle, reflecting back on his teacher, looking at Genesis, reminds us that in the beginning was the word. See, get philosophical again real quick. I can't hear what you're thinking unless you speak it. Words are actions of your mind. God doesn't use his hands. He uses his words to create. Jesus is that word. He is the action of the plan of God. And when Jesus acted, it was created through him, by him, and was created for him. When God said, light be, it's Jesus acting. He is the word of God who is God. And that's what we teach when it comes to God and creation. Jesus is acting. And therefore, I know something that all of you who are parents who have been children know. If you made it, it's yours. My son Jonathan likes to do origami. He's uh, gotten into it where he'll get on YouTube and watch these origami experts and do stuff. And he's like, and he folds very quickly these awesome X-Wing fighters. I'm just like so proud of him. Like Star Wars meets origami. Okay. And so he's flying, but he'll put these things down. And he's got an older and younger brother. And so invariably they come up and they go, that's so cool. Now, my son Jonathan's not very financially minded. He could sell salty for a dime, but he doesn't do that. Instead, his brothers go, hmm, I'm going to play with it. He, what does my son yell? That's mine. And he's right. So I take it from them and I put it down because it's his intellectual property rights. <laughs> That's why we don't like China stealing our stuff and selling it back to us for super cheap. We don't want him breaking our patents. We don't want somebody else selling our product and stealing our stuff and retelling our stories and writing things that we didn't say. We have copyright and patented reasons to say it's mine and stamp it with made by Greg, darn it. And yet we do this to God all the time. I mean, our culture loves to run around and take everything stamped made by Jesus and yell, mine! But there is not, as Abraham Kuyper says, there is not one square inch over human existence which God, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, Mine. It's His. He made it. Oh, our culture needs to remember this. Because how much are we right now saying, It's my body, I can do what I want? Uh, I don't think you made that. I think God made it. 
I think he knitted together in your womb. I don't think we have a right to kill that. What's that? Someone who belongs to God. I don't think we have a right to put that person to sleep, no matter what they're going through, and kill them. Why? Because they don't belong to us and they don't belong to themselves. Because they're God's. He made them. He put his stamp on them and he told us how to live. He has every right to tell us how to live. He has every right to tell us how these bodies work and how our souls live. See, you're a gift to yourself. That's a weird thought. He made your soul. Your soul doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. He made it. He made you. He put all the value in you. That doesn't mean you're like some furniture. He's like, yeah, I I inherited this from my grandma. (laughs) No, you are... You are God's precious creation, shaped and formed, fashioned and thought through, designed and implicate and just integrated in every, he thinks and sees every part of who you are forever. He knows you to be you because he made you and you are special to him. He created you and in that he values you. He made you after his own image and he says, you're mine. Don't hurt my things like that. Don't hurt my people like that. Don't hurt my image like that. I love you. You're mine. Well, we would never go so far as to say God made a mistake in making us, right? We're Christians. We wouldn't do that. So, so let's go somewhere else instead. We know God made us. We got that down. So what we like to do is we say, you know what? You're wasting my time. I don't know about you, but God just looked at me and said, Greg, when's the last time you invented a second? When did you ever invent an hour? Do we realize all 24 hours are gifted to us as a gift? You didn't make a single one of them. Guys, everything that we have is gifted by God. It's stamped by God as mine. Even our money, even our jobs, even the things that we do to make money, he made you. He put that in you. He gave it to you. He gave you the experiences that formed you. He, he, he watched as you decided how to, how to work from those, and he still worked with it. Guys, everything that we have is attested back to God. It's no wonder we ask for tithing at a church. It has nothing to do with the money. Oh, we need money. Sure, a church needs money to work off, but it's about the church, meaning not the guys in the offices, the church, all of us who follow Jesus, responding to God, saying, you know what, God, we know it's yours. And you said, in order to run our finances, right, sure, we'll put 10% back. Now, you can debate me on all that stuff and things like that. You want to get into it, that's fine. Let's just remind ourselves that in the New Testament, it's greater and above and beyond. It's called sacrificial giving, hilarity. I'm giving you an honor just to do 10%. And this isn't about, pastor, you're talking about money. Of course I am. I'm talking to myself. Because nothing I'm doing is mine. I don't own anything that's mine. None of us do. We give back from what he's given to us. That's why we serve. He gave you a gift that only works in the church. Use it. It's a gift that only functions to propagate and produce the church in our culture and in other cultures. And we go, yeah, you know, that's good. Can you finish this conversation? I'm uncomfortable. God has poured in. No wonder we give back in our service. We give back in our giving. We give back in our time because we're not our own. Our time's not ours. Our finances are not ours. Our children are not ours. They're our responsibility, but he owns them. They're his because he made them and he loves them and he cherishes them. He's made all things. 
You want to find your value? Look at Jesus. Because he's also sustaining you. Everything depends on Jesus. Look at what it says. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. There's nothing beyond him that he does not keep existing. You say, Greg, I know better than this. There are forces of the universe that hold the world together. I agree with you. Those forces actually described in Scripture are the word. He is the radiance, speaking of Jesus, he is the radiance, the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. What is that, the word of his power? Well, I like to think of those words as scientific laws. No, those are, that's the force of gravity. That's the nuclear force. Oh, that's, the, that's the forces of nature. This is where I think the ancients were a little smarter than us, let's be honest. If you, if you believe in the forces of nature, awesome. I do too. But the ancients would look at the wind blow through the trees and then they'd go, huh, that must be atmospheric pressures rising in one location and lowering another. So we have a low coming and the wind is going to go towards the atmospheric pressure that's rising and therefore it's rustling the brand, uh, the particles are moving and rustling the branches in the tree. Okay. That's not what they did. You know what they did? They looked at that and they think like I thought. See, when I put my cell phone down in my, in my kitchen and I walk away and I go upstairs and I'm doing something and I come downstairs, I have four children. Suddenly my cell phone's missing. I don't go... Huh, there must have been an atmospheric cell phone force that was over here, and it pulled my phone to the other location. And so we need to posit some distant force that creates movement. That cre- No, I go, who took my phone? Who moved it? Because we all understand, intuitively, things don't move by themselves. And so there were gods over all the forces because... Forces don't move by themselves. People make forces. And when you stop and back up and look at the scientific laws and you realize there's simplicity and you realize that gravity can be equated on a postcard and all these other things can be equated on a postcard and and they are present everywhere. They're powerful over everything. They're simple and now we see that they have to be personal. You know what else we call that? We call that the word of God. Because it's also true, murder is wrong everywhere. It's powerful over everything, and it is personal in its request. You shall not murder is a powerful statement and a simple statement. When you look at the nature, the physics, and you look at those laws, don't be surprised. There's no divide between science and Christianity. We undergird the very physical laws because God exists. It's his word we're looking at, which means something very important. He is keeping you personally alive right now. You are here today because he wants you here. You are alive now because he made you to be alive now. You are not an accident. You are not unvaluable. You are exactly where you're supposed to be now. The world wants to sell you short. But when you look at Jesus, you find your value. When you look at Jesus, you'll find your purpose because he's the one who has you here. And when you look at Jesus, you'll discover who God is and what it means to be human. Do we want to be the greatest version of what it means to be people? Then we look at Jesus. And I want to encourage you to do that because he has you here to know him 
and to walk with him through all the garbage of this world that you can enter into the world that has no more garbage. Would you bow your heads with me? Today you may be in that place where you need to receive what Jesus has given you. He values you that much. He died on the cross for you. And here's the beautiful thing. You don't earn it. You don't go to church and say your prayers and confess all this stuff. No, no, just receive him. He'll lead you to what you need to confess. He'll lead you to what you need to repent of. He'll lead you to turn and follow him. He's a great communicator in these things. But it starts with what have you done with Jesus? Have you received his love for you at the cross? Because if he hasn't taken your place on the cross, you have a due date with the justice for the evil that we've all committed. God doesn't want that. He loves you so much that right now you have a chance to receive that forgiveness. Would you please hear me? I don't know why you would hold back right now, but he's offering it to you. And all you got to do is right now just turn to him and say to God, God, I, I want to receive what you have for me. I trust that Jesus died on the cross to take my judgment and to love me. I ask that you'd forgive me I want to receive that forgiveness now. Would you come into my life now and lead me? And teach me to keep my eyes on you. You know, you may be praying that right now or praying something like that where you're just dealing with God. If that's you, would you just put your hand up just so that we can connect with you? I want to pray over you. And so you can just say, that's me. I am trying to get right with God. I am trying to... Get this right right now. And I know that's uncomfortable, so I'm going to raise my hand, but just for my sake and for those around, would you just do that so we can just pray with you? And Lord, we just lift up those in the room that are working through with you on various things. Thank you that you love us, then. Thank you that you care about us. Thank you that you have us here today, that you sustain us. Would you just bless us with just that knowledge alone so that we can bless you? And God, in that, would you teach us and lead us? Thank you that we get to sing and praise you today. Would you lead us in this time now? In Jesus' name, amen.